toes to fall and is in the Texas pit. They can't get one of the days and see to them a pop-upism or a victory. Sandy, 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 happy you fling, take a swing. It does no good to pop. Don't be bugged and don't be bitter, cause if it isn't a big no-hitter, Sandy, Sandy, will shut you up. Take me out to the ball game If we don't win, it's a shame Cause it's one, two, three And you're out at the old ball game Oh, Sandy, Sandy, Sandy Shows the ball and it isn't the catch's bit They can't hit one of they can't see to them Optimism or victory Sandy, Sandy, Sandy Pack your feet, take a swing It does no good to pop Don't be pumped and don't be bitter Cause if it isn't a big no-hitter Sandy, Sandy will shut you out Take me out to the ball from Sinai, a hairdresser from Patterson Park, and a firefighter from Glendon. There's a fourth grader from Friendship Academy, and a lacrosse star for Boys Latin, a Catholic priest, and an Orthodox rabbi, a grandma from Dundalk, and a drummer from Hamilton. What's inside a can of Old Bay? You are Old Bay. For 75 years, it's been the can that connects us. The Harvey Keen is batting for Bob Henley. The time on the scoreboard is 9.44, the date September the 9th, 1965. And Kofax working on veteran Harvey Keen. Sandy into his windup, and the pitch a fastball for a strike. He has struck out, by the way, five consecutive batters. And that's gone unnoticed. Sandy ready in the strike one pitch. Very high, and he lost his hat. He really forced that one. That's only the second time tonight where I have had the feeling that Sandy threw instead of pitched, trying to get that little extra. And that time, he tried so hard, his hat fell off. He took an extremely long stride to the plate, and Torborg had to go up to get it. One and one to Harvey Keene. Now he's ready. Fastball high, ball two. You can't blame a man. 
for pushing just a little bit now. Sandy backs off, mops his fire, runs his left index finger along his fire, dries it off on his left pants leg. All the while, Keen just waiting. Now Sandy looks in. Into his windup and the 2-1 pitch to Keen. Swung on and missed by two. It is 9.46 p.m. Two and two to Harvey Keen. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed the perfect game. Field. It is 9.46 p.m. in the city of the Angels, Los Angeles, California, and a crowd of 29,139, just sitting in to see the only pitcher in baseball history to hurl four no-hit, no-run games. He has done it four straight years, and now he capped it on his fourth no-hitter. He made it a perfect game. Sandy Koufax, whose name will always remind you of strikeouts, did it with a flourish. He struck out the last six consecutive batters. So when he wrote his name in capital letters in the record books, that K stands out even more than the O-U-F-A-X. Directed and mixed, don't 
tongue on your lips and eyes they spit back blips Pick a tip, any tip, get onto it I got ridiculous pies without forcing it You sit at home crying like a girl While I spread the gospel around the world Yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed in Smooth with the groove to make ears wanna listen Add a little gut and a rhythm to back it up Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up You take another white rap bag, but this ain't no act jack My hobbies are rhymes, some people try to be black But that, about time I come out, call the show BKP and let me turn it out, yo Name Jake the Snake, born in 71 Dates, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns Yo, experience, I've been a witness to glory And that's why I collect ball players and their stories You heard? So once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of all these islands, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program. That I call Backwards K Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, Seamheads? What's juicy? Welcome back to the Dojo for yet another week of the Grassroots Baseball Podcast Extravaganza, spanning the globe. A little show I call BKP, where I like to sit with like minded nerds and Regale you with true tales of the national pastime, all the memorable moments, the iconic players, and their amazing exploits on the diamond. We've covered the awe-inspiring cathedrals of of the game, from the amazing throwbacks of yesteryear like Polo Grounds, Forbes Field, Comiskey, just to name a few, to these modern-day shrines that dot the current Major League landscape, as well as our primal baseball conscience today. From General George Washington playing rounders with his aide-de-camp at Valley Forge while he contemplates crossing the Delaware River to kick some Hessian and British ass. All the way up to the unicorn, Shohei Otani. We got a show, we got a podcast on him. All in all, folks, we're talking about almost 250 years of baseball history. I'm proud of this audience. Proud of the catalog. And I know I'm building something that will be around long after I'm gone. I'm truly honored to be the gatekeeper for the history of baseball. And ostensibly, my objective with this passion project is to spread the gospel of baseball around the world and leave my voice behind. Not only for you current freaks, but also the seam heads of tomorrow. Maybe spark a newfound love or even reignite a love for the game that you may have lost. At some point in your life. Hello everybody. It's your boy Jake the Snake Robinson. From the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Where we collect ball players. And their stories. I got your hook up. Holler if you hear me. This is Backwards K-Pod Show 112. Week 7 of the 2023 offseason. And before we dig into this week's topic. Let's do our weekly BKP Hot Stove Report so I can keep you abreast of some of the signings and things going on in anticipation of that 2024 season. So, the two biggest fish on the MLB free agent market are officially signed. 
And they both reside SoCal, playing for the Dodgers. And I'm talking about Japanese imports, Shohei Otani and Yoshinobu Yamamoto, of course. And on the Al Kaline show last week, I spoke about Otani finally making that decision to call Chavez Ravine home for the next decade when he signed that historic, massive, 10-year, $750 million contract with L.A. And we also hit on them trading Pepeo and LaDuca to Tampa for uh, Tyler Glass now and Manuel Margot. And within 24 hours, they had signed Glass now to a five-year, $136.5 million extension. And people were wondering throughout the baseball universe, were they done? Well, as we all know now, they most certainly were not done, as not only did the Dodgers come away with Otani and an extended glass now on their new 2024 roster, but they also won the Yoshinobu Yamamoto uh, sweepstakes when the Japanese hurler in the club came to terms on a 12-year, $325 million deal. There was a $50 million signing bonus attached to the deal. And the Dodgers are also on the hook for the $50 million posting fee owed to Yamamoto's former Nippon League team, the Oris Buffaloes. Now, the contract reportedly has no deferrals, which I'll get into deferrals in a minute. And it includes opt-outs after years 6 and 8. The contract uh, of guaranteed money, it surpasses Derek Cole by a million dollars. On his current nine-year, $324 million deal with the Yankees. Although, Cole holds the advantage in the AAV. It's the longest free agent deal for a full-time pitcher with uh, two-way unicorn stars not included, you know, like a toddy. But it's the largest free agent deal for a full-time pitcher since Wayne Garland signed a 10-year, $2.3 million deal with the Cleveland Indians back in 1977. And he would be released by the club five years later. The club considers the 25-year-old a potential top-of-the-rotation arm, despite his 5'10-inch height and his slight frame. He features a fastball that explodes out of his hand that sits in the mid-90s, tops out around 98. And he's got multiple wipeout secondary pitches that include a sweeper curve and a nasty, nasty splitter. That disappears in front of the disc. He's probably the most decorated Japanese pitcher to ever come to America, which is pretty impressive when you consider that, you know, Hideo Nomo, you Darvish, Kasazaki, Koji Awara, Hiroki Kuroda, Higashi Wakuma, Kente Maeda, Daisuke Matsuzaka. I mean, he was highly decorated. Masi Tanaka. All these guys had standout careers and successfully transitioned from the NPB to the majors. He comes to the show with a, uh, he's just coming off a triple crown pitching season in Japan, as well as three Salamore Awards, which is the Japanese equivalent to the Major League Baseball Cy Young, except that the Salamore Award is given to only the best pitcher in the whole NPL. It's not given to a pitcher in the Central and Pacific Leagues. And he won those the last three consecutive seasons. During that span, he's gone 49-16 with a 1.44 ERA, 580 strikeouts, and he was also the Central League MVP three years in a row. 
when Otani was linked to his historic deal with the Dodgers, many fans and insiders, they wondered if L.A. was done with high-priced free agents and with so many other pressing needs in their starting rotation. And within hours after that deal, it became public that Shoah deferred $680 million of that money to the very last year of a 10-year obligation, leaving the Dodgers plenty of wiggle room for more pitching. So then L.A. trades DeLuca and Pepio to Tampa for Marco and Glass now. Within 24 hours of that move, they gave Glass a five-year, $136 million extension. He was still owed $25 million for uh, 2024 from his previous contract. So that made the deal like this four years and $111.5 million in new money. So because of the Unicorn's willingness to defer money, the club was able to capitalize on some financial flexibility there and break off a little something-something for glass. And when I went up the air last week... That's where things stood. And still we wondered, with Yamamoto out there on his rock star tour, listening to pitches around the league for his services, are the Dodgers done? Man, oh man, they were not done. And again, the Dodgers were able to make that happen because of Otani's team-friendly contract. And I say that with bunny ears because it's real team-friendly you know, but man, I, I hope I'm around for another 10 years to see how the Dodgers navigate a $680 million payroll on one guy. And it makes me wonder, is that where the Dodgers project team payrolls to be 10 years from now? Well, that's a scary thought. But for now, the Dodgers got the best hitter, two-way freak unicorn, whatever you want to call him, for the biggest team sports contract in the world. And Otani, they got the number one Japanese pitcher, arguably the best pitcher on the market because of his age, and they gave him the biggest free agent contract in terms of years of money. And they were able to use the money saved on the front end of the Otani deal to spend almost a half billion dollars on the Glassnaw extension and to acquire Yamamoto. It sounds like he was always leaning towards the Dodgers, and the fact that Otani was on the club is like an added bonus. It, it also, in retrospect, looks like he used the Mets to set the market and L.A. matched it. So, yeah, good job, Mets. Way to go. So, the Dodgers have used their resources well. That starting lineup, for the most part, as well as on the bump, it's homegrown or developed by them. They've also made great trades, like from Mookie Betts, and they signed some stud free agents and free Unicorn, now Yamamoto. And as the 2023 season ends with this last show, I'm still asking myself, are they done? Right? I mean, why stop now? Josh Hader would be a cool. Now look, he wants Edwin Diaz money. That's a lot of scratch for a closer. But I say embrace, embrace the evil gluttony of it all. <laughs> Side Hader and steal soda from the Yankees in the offseason. Nah, well, well, well. The Dodgers. I mean, they're coming in hard. They're coming in hot. So now with 
Otani and Yamamoto on the board. I would expect the pace to begin to pick up over the next four weeks or so, and it would appear that all eyes are now turned to Blake Snell and Cody Bellinger, arguably the best pitcher and hitter available in the kitchen right now. Both of them have been laid in wait for the two big pitchers to get signed, and I think both of them have a guesstimate about where their value projects, although I think Bellinger's value is a little shakier than he may have anticipated. Now, no one is probably happier for the Yamamoto deal than Blake Snell, who has to be like, look, man, I've won Cy Youngs in both the AL and NL, including last season, when he took his performance to like a whole nother level that last month, month and a half of the season. And now at 31 years old, He's certainly not expecting the years that Yoshinobu got, but I'm sure he's looking for his, you know, he's looking at that $27 million AAV, and he's looking somewhere in the $30 million and over range for the next five years. And I know the Giants need some pops on the offense, but I don't think it would be a bad idea for them to look at the Snell. I also think they should be in on, you know, like this Matt Chapman or Reese Hoskins if I was San Francisco, I'd be proactive in trying to trade for Manoa from Toronto. Oracle Park has a way of fixing pitchers. Vogelsong, Gosman, Rondone, Alex Cobb. Snell would excel. Manoa would profit. And I really think he would have a great shot at returning to form if he pitched out in Oracle. Cody Bellinger, on the other hand, uh, he's been an interesting follow. In the beginning, it looked like he was headed to the, to the Bronx, but when the Yankees got Verdugo, Grisham, and Soto, that kind of eliminated him from their equation. And then it looked like Toronto, who was all in an Otani, might pull him out of the oven. But they made the curious lateral move of re-signing Kevin Kiermaier to a one-year $10 million deal this week, which... I'm thinking does not leave the Jays out of the Bellinger sweepstakes. Maybe they still sign Cody, move Dalton Varsho back to his natural position in center field, and they use Kiermaier for a year as like this late-inning replacement, fourth outfielder kind of deal. Sounds like the Cubs are not against bringing him back, but I guess it depends on the money. Insider suggests Bellinger is looking for a deal in the $230 million range. I'd love to see Bellinger in Cincinnati, quite honestly, where he has mashed throughout his career. 317 BA, 8 home runs, 1.029 OPS at Great American Ballpark. Probably would never happen, but hey, you know, us, us small market guys, we, we got to stick together. Let's see what else we got before we get to the topic. Martin Maldonado is signed by the White Sox giving them, like, I don't know, 12 catchers on their roster now. Mitch Garver signs with the Mariners to be the full-time DH. Shelby Miller signs with Detroit. And I told you, I like how KC and Detroit have been aggressive this year in a very winnable AL Central. But Cleveland finally made a move trading for Esteban Florio, who at one time was a highly touted Yankees prospect who kind of got lost in a shovel there. So... Even with many people focusing on Otani and Yamamoto, there's been a lot of heat coming over that stove from day one when Aaron Nola quietly, quietly re-signed with Filthy. And what I consider a quietest kept great move for the player and the team. And there are still crazy productive players available going into January. Trades all over the place. So many trade possibilities. I'll be here every week of the offseason to keep you nerds informed on the many maneuvers until opening day 2024.
So, with that being the last hot stove report of the year in the books with a backwards K next to it, it's time to fire up our BKP Time Travel 2-2 one last time here in 2023 for this week's topic. So, if I could get all of you C-Meds to kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye, I'd like to clear the platform here at Terrapin Station. It's good to see most of you have already claimed your seat, you're squared away. we still got a few stragglers. As I look out of the ball field to the west, I see the pitcher has completed his warm-ups. The catcher has thrown down a second. The umpire has called play ball. And now that infield is throwing the ball around. That's good enough for me. I'm calling all aboard. As this week's folks, we are going to take a deep dive into the life and career of one of the greatest modern-day pitchers who ever lived. Sandy Kopacz. So, hurry, hurry, step right up, get in where you fit in, prepare to bend baseball space and time, as I have set our time and destination this week to December 30th, 1935, Brooklyn, New York, and what is commonly known as the Bensonhurst section, where our story begins. So, take off your shoes. Open your kimonos, get yourself as comfortable as possible, we don't judge, and while I hit these interdimensional wormholes to get to Brooklyn 1935, let's talk a little bit about Mr. Kopax. And I'm going to guess that the majority of this audience, just like myself, never had the opportunity to watch this pitching maestro go to work. I'm a generation removed from that honor, but growing up, much like, you know, the legendary Bob Gibson, I was inundated with Kopax's mythos. My grandfather was a diehard Dodgers fan, going back to their time in Brooklyn. So as a five, six-year-old kid learning the game of baseball, Kopax was a point of reference for my grandfather many times when talking to me about great pitching. And in my mind, as I begin to understand more and more what makes a great pitcher, mostly by watching Jim Palmer, my grandfather was always there to remind me, not as good as Sandy. Kopax, Gibson... These guys became like superheroes in my baseball conscience. I'd stare at the numbers on his baseball card, watch the grainy video, and I'd take my grandfather at his word because why not? He's the smartest baseball fan I know at seven years old. He's never lied to me, so Sandy was larger than life for me as a kid. He had mystique about him. And in a lot of ways, that still holds true for me today. When someone is dubbed the left arm of God, how can he not hold mystique over someone who never saw him play? From 1962 to 1966, no one did it better. Well, you know, maybe Pedro in his run, but that's another debate for another pot. Kopax has a long litany of statistics to attest to his overall brilliance during this period, which we will certainly unearth and observe today, but the most salient points are these. 
Kopacz became the first pitcher to ever win three Cy Young Awards, which many people know. But he was the only pitcher to win Cy Youngs when the prize was given to just one major league pitcher, as opposed to one in each league now. So, kind of like Yamamoto back in Japan, like I told you earlier, how he won three South Moore Awards in Japan, and there's only one winner of the prestigious Japanese Pitching Award at the end of the year. He won the Pitching Triple Crown in each of his Cy Young seasons in 1963, 65, and 66. He has a 1.37 ERA in Chavez Ravine, which is the lowest ERA by any pitcher in any stadium with 500 minimum innings pitched. He had three seasons of 300-plus strikeouts, which ties him for second most with Kurt Schilling, behind only Nolan Ryan and Randy Johnson, who had six. A freaking .95 ERA in World Series competition, freaks. By far, the lowest ERA by any pitcher with at least five starts in the Paul Classic. And then there's, of course, this little thing about four consecutive seasons of throwing a no-no. The last one of those four being a perfect game. And I gotta tell you, it's been an amazing week of watching the all-time greats of any era. Hank, Mickey, Willie, the Duke, Ernie, the Hit King. All of them to a man testified in interviews during and after their careers. And all of them agree, Sandy was an unhittable force of nature. Mr. Cub marveled at his gravity-defying rising fastball. Pete Rose said the curve started above his ankles and literally uh, broke to the ground. I mean, it went straight into the ground. You can't hit that pitch, Rose said. I hit 175 against Kopax in my career. I never had a chance. Now, some of these players included Bob Gibson, but all of those players, except Snyder, who played alongside Sandy and Dodgers Blue, said Kopax. Banks listening in, followed with Kopax is the greatest pitcher I ever faced. You were either going to strike out or foul out. Nobody embarrassed me like Sandy. Rose went even further, saying, I hit over 300 versus Gibson, Spahn, Marichal, all these guys. I wore them out. But Sandy, and he fades away to deep reflection like a soldier who has seen the horrors of war and would rather not talk about it. Sandy's build, in particular his huge back, long arms, exceptionally long fingers, it enabled him to put extra spin on his pitches. Sounds like he would fit right into today's game, right? It could have, you know, probably limited those innings and preserved that arm a little better, but I'm getting there. I digress. And it's amazing to see the old pictures of Sandy with the ball as low as the top of his left ankle when he reaches back to throw, and then he comes with that fluid over-the-top delivery that utilized the weight and full force of his body. Kopacz believed his natural gifts required him to work hard at his job. And his job was to win baseball games. He was, and still is, a man of personal integrity. It took six seasons for him to master his wildness. He worked hard and made adjustments, but his career was over at the age of 30 due to an arthritic left elbow. Which only leads credence to the mystique of the icon. 
When he was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1972, he was 36 years old. The youngest man still to this day to ever be enshrined in the Pantheon of Legends. Decades after his retirement, debate still rages over Sandy's dazzling peak versus his career totals. And two other factors have fueled this mystical aura in my baseball conscience when it comes to Kopax. As one of the greatest Jewish baseball players ever, he is a hero among his tribe, especially after refusing to, p- to pitch game one of the 1965 World Series because it fell on the high holy day of Yom Kippur. And I respected that. Even as a kid, I knew he did the right thing there. The other factor in his mystique for me is his deep sense of privacy. Kopax is baseball royalty. Greatly admired, yet we rarely see him. He makes very few public appearances, even fewer interviews, and for the most part, he has remained out of the spotlight. But, every once in a while, Mr. Kopax shows up at Dodger Stadium and he is a spectacle. He's Andre the freaking giant. Dodgers fans, of course, go nuts over him, but baseball fans in general get excited to see him, whether it's at his statue dedication or on the Hall of Fame stage. Koufax has cachet. Just seeing him is an event. To actually hear him speak is pure baseball bliss. I would assume that was some of the things my grandfather felt when watching him in his prime years. And thankfully... He has always retained this unique personal presence with the game and fans. And it means something when there's a Kofax sighting. And here we are, folks, coming through that last wormhole and straight into Brooklyn, New York, December 30th, 1935, for the birth of the baby with the left arm of God. Sandy was born Sanford Braun. To mother Evelyn Lickstein and father Jack Braun, who were supported Jews of Hungarian descent. When Sandy is three, his parents divorce. And Evelyn takes him to live with her parents. And growing up, Sandy was really close to his grandfather, who was a plumber by trade. And he enjoyed running around Bensonhurst with his friends playing stoop ball, punch ball, stick ball. Sandy is nine when his mother marries an Irvin Kofax, a lawyer, whom Sandy always affectionately called Dad. The Kofax unit would soon thereafter move to Rockville Center in New York, but we returned back to Bensonhurst after Sandy completed the ninth grade. And that was the year, at the age of 14, when Kofax fell in love with his favorite sport as a kid, basketball. He was a strong rebounder, and he could literally jump out of the freaking gym. He was such a force on the hardwoods. He demonstrated his skill in front of the, his beloved New York Knicks when the Police Athletic League of Bath Beach arranged a benefit game at his alma mater, Lafayette High. And during summer vacations from high school, the young Sandy would work as a waiter and counselor at Camp Chidu. Chiwanda near Kingston, New York while his mom, the accountant was their bookkeeper Milton Laurie, 
A delivery driver for the New York Journal American is believed to be the first man to realize Kovacs' pitching brilliance. Lloyd was a longtime Sandlot circuit manager who, many moons before discovering the young Sandy, was himself signed by the Boston Braves. According to legend, he spotted Kovacs pitching for the Tomahawks in the Ice Cream League, which was a counterpart to the Babe Ruth and Little League in New York City back in those days. And even though Kovacs walked nine batters in two innings, Laurie had his son Walter, who was a classmate of Sandy, invite the young pitcher to join his Sandlot travel team. Sandy's first inclination was to turn down the invitation, but after much prodding by Milton and Walter, he changes his mind. The team was called the Parkviews, and they played in the Coney Island Sports League at Diker Beach Park on 14th Avenue and 46th Street in Brooklyn. Sandy continues to work at the summer camp, and he didn't play much, but it was said when he did play, he would usually strike out between 12 to 18 batters on the average. And one day, his dad, Irvin, shows up at the park to watch his son play. And when they get home that night, they're sitting around their dinner table. His father shocks him by saying how, how proud he was of Sandy as well as how impressed he was with his competitiveness and athleticism. All his life, his dad could be heard saying that spending on baseball is a waste of money. And Sandy will never be a baseball player. He's going to be an architect. But something must have stirred the inside of his old man that day, watching his son and his element doing what I can only imagine what a young Koufax would do as a teenager, and that's make hitters look really bad. He turns to his wife, Sandy's mom. And he says, Evelyn, maybe you should give Sandy some money to get some new baseball spikes. He was slipping all over the place out there on the mound. Now, Sandy enjoyed baseball. And he was elated to win his father's approval and blessing. But basketball was still Sandy's true athletic love. He was so good that the University of Cincinnati, the Bearcats, a team with a strong basketball reputation... They offered him a full scholarship to play hoops. And the scouts had seen the high-flying Kovacs in high school games and at the Jewish community house. And after consulting with his proud parents, he accepted the offer. At the urging of his friends, Kovacs did eventually play baseball his senior year at Lafayette High. He played first base, and the team captain was Fred Wilpon, a southpaw with a 12-6 looping curve who would become better known years later as the owner of the New York Mets. Kovacs shows up on the Cincinnati campus, a 6.2-inch power forward freak, who was a savage, cleaning the boards. And for those days, he enjoyed living above the rim. He's the starting power forward on the freshman team and the third leading scorer in the squad. And that team would win 12 or 14 games, according to his coach, Ed Junker, who would lead the Bearcats to NCAA championships in 1961 and 1962, as well as coach the uh, Cincinnati Royals and the NBA. He always maintained that Kopash could have played in the association. But 
Jucker was also the Bearcats' baseball coach. The team needed pitchers badly, so Koufax volunteered to help out. He threw really, really hard, but he was wild. And the catchers on the team, they really wanted no part of him. In his debut college game at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi, Sandy struggles with his command. He takes the loss. He returns to the natty. And he pitches a poor hitter versus Wayne University, striking out 16. His next start is against Louisville. And he sets a school record, creating 18 Cardinal batters. He finishes his freshman year with a 3-1 record, 51 strikeouts, 30 walks, and 32 innings pitched. And even though his walk ratio is almost a walk in inning, scouts are enamored by his ability to miss bats, and they begin contacting the school to gauge where the young hurler's head is at in relation to his future. And he received a lot of interest from all three major league teams residing in New York City at the time, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Giants. Not only because the free southpaw brings the heat, but also because of his religion, ever since the days of John McGraw, the New York teams always had a desire for Jewish drawing cards. Now, the Yankees sent the Jewish scout, and that offended the Kopach family. Plus, they only offered him $4,000 in a Class D assignment. Kopach had tries with the Giants at Polar Grounds, but he shows up to the park without his glove. After barring one from Johnny Antonelli, he didn't have a great showing as he was all out of sorts in his head and he was in his own head from the start after forgetting his glove. He was tense and he admitted years later that fear won out that day. Dodgers super scout Al Campanis is introduced to young Sandy on a tip from a sports writer for the Brooklyn Eagle. The intro leads to a workout at Ebbets Field before Dodgers GM Buzz Mavazzi and manager Walt Austin. And after the workout, Campanus offers Sandy a $14,000 bonus along with a $6,000 salary. Now, Branch Rickey, who was now GM for the Pittsburgh Pirates and most assuredly still had his circle of spies and moles all over Brooklyn, he sent word to the Kopach family that they would surpass the $14,000 bonus Offered by the Dodgers by five grand, pushing it to 19. The Milwaukee Braves upped the ante to 30k, but it was too late. Sandy confided in his dad, Irvin, and the two of them were convinced that the Dodgers was the best option for the young lefty. So on December 14, 1954, Sandy Kopach signs with Brooklyn as an amateur free agent bonus baby. Sandy then dropped out of Cincinnati, transferred to Columbia University to take courses in architecture. But eventually, between baseball and his military reserve obligations, it became too much, and he would drop out of Columbia. And while Sandy's $14,000 bonus, which is around $165,000 for purchasing power in the 2023 economy, uh, you know, that's rather rather modest back then in relation to what, what many of the big bonus babies pulled down in this era. The $6,000 salary, it guaranteed him three years on the Major League roster. I'm sorry, two years on the Major League roster without the club being able to send him to the minors. And we spoke of this role last week on the Al K-Line pod. 
another bonus baby. Although he's four years later, and I believe the salary threshold had been lowered by that time, if I'm not mistaken. So neither K-Line or Kofax ever played a day in the minors and went all the way to the Hall of Fame. But their routes were much different as K-Line wins a batting title two years removed from high school while Kofax struggles. Whereas K-Line is literally in the batter's box at Shad Park facing Harry Bird in the A's Two weeks after graduating from Southern High School in Baltimore, Kovacs waits for a whole two months into the 1935 season before he gets a debut shot. Early in the season, he injured his ankle, and he wound up on the disabled list when he returns on June 8th. As Billy Bean would say on Moneyball, Tommy, I can only have 25 guys in the locker room, so... Tommy Lasorda, a young up-and-coming pitcher, did not take the demotion to Montreal laying down, and he was quick to throw Sandy under the bus. I tell you what, nobody can tell a story quite like Lasorda, so let's listen to Meatball here tell it. I was summoned into the office of Buzzy Belazi, the general manager. He said to me that I had to leave the Dodgers and go back to our AAA club. And I said, Buzzy, what do I have to do to prove to you and the managers that I can pitch in the big leagues? I said, I won 20 games at Montreal. What do I have to go back there? He said, Tommy, I got a tough job. I got to cut one player off this club. He said, if you were the general manager, who would you cut? And I, without any hesitation, I said, Sandy Koufax. I said, here's a guy that was, he was having trouble just throwing the ball over the plate. And he said, I'm sorry, but the rules of baseball say that if you give a player a signing and give him over $4,000 bonus, he must remain on the major league club for two years. So he says, Koufax stays and you go. And now I can walk around and honestly say it took the greatest left-hand pitcher in baseball to knock me off of that Brooklyn club. Yeah, what, what, what? I love that dude. Meatball, he's so funny. And Tommy was always quick to add to his last day on earth before entering Dodger heaven. I still think they made a mistake cutting me for Kopax. Once he came off that DL, idleness settled in as Austin preferred experience over youth as the 1955 Brooklyn Ball Club was a World Series contender. Plus, in those days, you have to understand that pitching staffs were smaller, constructed much different than the brand you see today. It was a four-man rotation, and those dudes are expected to go deep. And the win is your biggest value stat besides ERA. That's your fucking brand. And there were usually two long relief arms, a lefty and a righty, preferably in case a starter got into troubles early. The closer role is in an early evolutionary process and virtually carries no weight in the game as the save is not even a recognized concept then. But there was usually one short relief arm to put out late inning fires or wrap a game up. So to back them up, there's now these eighth and ninth pitchers and they're the low men on the totem pole. In the normal course of events, they rarely saw action. They generally waited for a blowout by either side or an unfortunate injury to occur. And that's where a young Sandy Kopax resided. Finally, on June 24th, 1955, Kopax makes his major league debut against the Braves at Milwaukee's County Stadium. In a game that saw the Dodgers trailing 7-1 when he entered in the fifth, he pitches two scoreless innings, 
and he strikes out two. After one more relief appearance, he earns his first start on July 6, 1955, and the first game was doubleheader versus Pittsburgh at Forbes Field. He lasted just four and two-thirds, allowing one run of three hits with eight walks. After that start, he only appears three more times in a span of 50 days. His first win comes on August 27, 1955, a complete game shutout versus the Reds on two hits, five walks, 14 strikeouts, including slugger Gus Bell, who he struck out four times that day. In his next start, September 3rd, he hurls another complete, complete game shutout, blanking the Pirates. And the Dodgers finally break through after six tries to beat their hated nemesis, New York Yankees counterparts in the World Series. And even though Kopax did not pitch in the series, he did receive a full share from the team. In 1956, Brooklyn would win the NL pennant but fall to the Yankees in the World Series. Kopax was on that postseason roster, but Austin never caught him. And during his first two years, Kopax gains little experience and he begins to naturally get frustrated. He was quick to blame his wildness and lack of command on the sporadic playing time. It was this vicious cycle. He couldn't pitch until he improved his command, and he couldn't improve his command if he wasn't pitching. Kovacs got more work in 1957. He appeared in 34 games, starting 13 of them, and he logs over 100 innings for the first time in his, his career. The season ended on a distinctive note as Sandy Kopacz became the last man to throw a pitch competitively in a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform when he comes on in relief of Roger Craig in Philadelphia and struck out Willie Jones on three pitches. During the 1958 season, Sandy intimates to his best friend on the team, Carl Erskine, that he was contemplating quitting baseball and going to pursue an opportunity into buying a radio station. But at the end of the season, Kovacs felt appreciated about the Dodgers and the way they used him that year. He got into 40 games with 26 of those appearances as a starter. Nearly 160 innings pitched. He told Erskine he would give it one more year before making that final decision. And Erskine always believed that because basketball was always Sandy's first love. He just didn't have that rookie baseball fire that other youngsters have when they come up. He was also sure that Sandy carried guilt over leapfrogging so many good pitchers in the Dodgers system because of his bonus. Sandy never reached out to vets for advice. He was ostensibly teaching himself through trial and error. And guys back then were living on these one-year contracts at a time and were less inclined to help a competitor get over His 1959 season starts poorly. By May 2nd, his mechanics are a mess and his confidence has melted away. He had started four games and didn't get out of the fourth in any of them. In 11 innings pitch, he had allowed 19 hits, 17 walks. His ERA is an atrocious 12.27. And Sandy can't help, wonder, help but wonder if the Dodgers are going to cut bait here. Thank <laughs> you.
In mid-June, Kopacz begins to get going. He improved the control, and he pitched three consecutive complete game victories. And he has a similar stretch in late August. On August 31st, against those damn Giants at the L.A. Coliseum, Kopacz strikes out 18 batters and what would prove to be the final win of his season. The Dodgers again clinch the NL pennant, and he finally gets an opportunity to pitch before the baseball universe on the World Series stage. After pitching two innings in Game 1, a blowout loss to the White Sox, Kopax gets handed the ball to start Game 5. Before 92,706 fans at the Coliseum, Kopax was superb. As he throws seven innings of five-hit ball while striking out six, he walks only one and allowed the game's only run when Sherm Lawler's grounded into a double play. The White Sox may have won the battle, but Erskine believes that Kopax won the war that day as that game changed him. For the first time, Kopax seemed to get it, and he believed he could be successful. He had finally come to grips with his insecurities and his guilt, as well as his interference of failure, and it transformed him from an inconsistent, mediocre pitcher to an inner circle tribal chief Hall of Famer. Okay, Freaks. I think this is where I'm going to take a break this week. It's just so weird hearing how bad Sandy struggled in the beginning when we know in retrospect what he will become. When we get back, we'll pick up where we left off going into the 1960s with the Dodgers running through NL opponents, picking up pennants all over the place, and with a confident Kopax chomping at the bit and about to change of stars to pull one of the most dominant stretches of pitching the baseball universe has ever seen. Support the grassroots sponsor and support your grassroots baseball podcast show, Laparose Hand Cleaner. No mo smelly hands. I'll be RB with Acts 2 and 3 of the Sandy Kopacz story. I'll see you freaks on the dark side of the moon. Obvious power is not yet over in the big leagues. Throws him out. You are out. 
And of all the great plays that Manny Machado has made this year, that might be the best. The minister does it again. He's facing Kyle Tucker, who hits a high fly ball. Deep left center. That's where the catch is Cody Bellinger. And Lincoln, did he make the catch? Yeah, he did. He made an unbelievable catch. Cody Bellinger might be shaken up, but he possibly stole a home run with an impossible play on the warning track. Bellinger made the catch. A leaping catch against the wall. He fell forward, held on to the ball. The inning is over. it up, down the left field line, tailing foul, Garcia ranges back, Witt sprints over, by the top, slides, makes a backhand grab! Oh, what a play! Bobby Witt Jr., sensational again! Once again, we know Bobby Witt Jr. has exceptional range and speed, so whenever those balls go up off the left-handed bat or the right-handed head that way, Jr., who's paying him the fold, is a dead sprint. Hits one to center field. Back pedaling Kiermaier. Jumps! Executive producer of Backwards K Pod. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. 
The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake had a true connection as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning, crawfishhandcleaner.com. One and one in World Series play for 1965, Sandy Koufax. Strikeout. Strikeout. Struck him out. Strikeout number three for Koufax. Five strikeouts for Kopak. Runner going. Strikeout for Kopak. His six. Coach said he died of fastballs, and Kopak records his number three strikeout. Robert Willow. Fastball got it. That's the pitch. Strikeout number eight. Three. Very top looking. He did it. Sandy Kopak gets his tenth strikeout, his second consecutive shutout of the Twins on Monday on a four hitter, but today on a two hitter. Every pitcher, of course, likes to finish a game with a strikeout. This was, of course, not a game. 
This was the seventh game of the World Series. and their stories, and before me and Gunner bounced from that spot break, we were digging into the life and career of the incomparable Sandy Kopax, and we've gone through his early life of growing up in Bensonhurst, New York City, having hoop dreams and ambitions, playing in the NBA, becoming a two-way sports star at the University of Cincinnati, And after his freshman year at Cincinnati, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Giants, Pirates, Braves, they're all clamoring for his services. He eventually signs with Brooklyn as a bonus baby who is prohibited from being sent to the minors for three years. But it didn't come easy for the left hand of God. He struggles with his command. His playing time is sporadic. And he knows it's only a matter of time before the Dodgers get rid of him, or just, you know, he's going to just surrender and get into the radio business. And after being left out in the cold for two previous postseason appearances, Sandy finally gets his chance when he starts Game 5 of the 1959 World Series versus the Go-Go Sox. He pitched seven innings of fantastic ball, and even though L.A. loses one and nothing, Sandy gets a taste of success on the big stage, and... He's chomping at the bit to get the 1960 campaign underway. The Dodgers themselves were beginning to get a sense of what they had in Sandy as well after that Game 5 performance, but it really hit home when they proposed a trade of Duke Snyder and Johnny Padres uh, package to the Yankees for catcher Elston Howard. And Yankees GM George Weiss Callard with Elston for Snyder and Kopax. And Buzz Bavese was quick to rebuff that offer. But when the 1960 season ends, Sandy is still uncertain about his future. He was thoroughly disgusted with his performance over 175 innings pitched. Despite his 197 strikeouts, he walked 100 batters. And his 3.91 ERA was only marginally better than his career ERA at that point. And when we speak of Kopax, it's always like this tale of two halves of a 12-year career. It was the worst of times, the best of times, as Charles Dickens would say. From 1955 through 1960, he was 36 and 40, 405 walks, and 691 two-third innings pitched, and a 4.10 ERA. But... Kovacs blows up in 1961, winning 18 games, leading the National League with 269 strikeouts 
and 255 and two-thirds innings pitched. And during spring training of 1961, Norm Sherry sits next to him on a bus headed for games at Vero Beach, Florida. And as I told you earlier, Koufax is basically self-taught. The vets aren't any help. Everyone is living on one-year contracts. Koufax is basically throwing shit against the wall and see what the cat licks up. So, Sherry turns to Koufax. And he suggests that Sandy ease up on the mound. Stop trying to throw the ball through the catcher. He noticed the more Sandy reared back for the heat, the wilder he got. His body tensed, his muscles strained, and his mechanics would get out of whack. You need loose wrists to control your crazy spin, not more muscular tension. You have all the tools, but you don't look like you're having fun out there. Loosen up. You will still throw as hard as anyone in the league, but I'd like to see you trust your secondary pitches, your curves, and change-ups. And finally, someone in the organization was coaching him. And he heeded Sherry's suggestion. And just like that, folks, it was the turning point of Sandy's career. Many of you may have thought it was something bigger, but that was that light bulb over the head, aha moment. He learned to pitch, and not just how to throw gas. And then, he picked up a little, you know, these little lessons along the way to work in tandem with his economized effort. For example, Kopax began to put an act to pull batters. He didn't like to shake off signs in a regular manner because he had suspicions that he was tipping his pitch selection. Instead, he learned to shake off series of signs only to come back to the one that he originally wanted. He wouldn't think about opposing lineups until his warm-up. Warm-ups. Uh, he believed the later he thought about the other team's lineups, the more he concentrated on each hitter in the moment. He began to focus on getting the mediocre to average hitters out rather than going all in on top-shelf liquor batters. He believed that giving up three hits to a star like, say, Willie or Hank was fine if no one around him is getting on. He learned that he would never be able to throw a slider in his career. No matter how much he tried, the pitch took too much out of his arm and it caused him serious pain. He learned to pitch from the top of the rubber instead of in front of it. This maximized his leverage and push. He believed it necessary to own the outer half of the dish. Establish the outside black as your real estate all game. And never, never get beat in a close game by throwing a strike on the inner half. He also realized that throwing teammates under the bus for costing him a win was counterproductive and selfish, considering that that same player is going to probably get him out of trouble sometime down the road another game. His last win in 1961, it came in the last big game played at the L.A. Coliseum. He pitched a 13-inning complete game, an astounding 205 pitches. Which, sidebar folks, I hear people complain how the pitchers today are pussies and yada, yada, yada. 205 pitches. And then we wonder why he is gone by the age of 30. 
that. You can opine for the old days all you want, but 205 pitches is fucking ridiculous. Especially when the pendant isn't even up for grabs. But anyway, 205 pitches to 50 batters. He struck out 15, walked 3, and didn't give up a hit after the 8th inning. During his final five seasons, 1961 through 1965, Koufax ascended to the heavens as a baseball deity. He certainly benefited with his new pitcher-friendly home park in Dodger Stadium, and he had arguably the best peak period of any pitcher by any metric in the history of the game. Over that six-year span, Koufax pulls down 111 wins, and loses only 34 with a sparkling 1.95 ERA. He led the NL in ERA in each of those five seasons. The Sporting News names him NL Pitcher of the Year from 1963 to 1966. And each of his Cy Young Triple Crown seasons, he won at least 25 games, struck out over 300 batters. In 1963, he is voted the NL MVP and was runner-up in 65 and 66. In 1962, come out comes out the game white hot, striking out 18 Cubs at Wrigley on April 24th in a 10 to nothing shutout. But his next start, he suffered a career-threatening injury, not to his elbow or his throwing arm, but to his index finger. April 28th versus Pittsburgh at Dodger Stadium. Sandy was a natural right-handed hitter, but he decides to swing left-handed this day to protect his arm. Buckos pitcher Earl Francis jammed a swinging Sandy in on the hands and a piece of the ball caught his finger. He got a single on the play, and he went on the pitch with a complete game 2-1 victory. However, the drama led to the circulatory condition known as Reno's phenomenon. It got so bad that if he pressed the finger, it would literally turn white for hours. And his thumb was also affected to a degree by, by the injury. And despite the numbness, Koufax pitches his first no-hitter June 30th, 1962 versus the expansion Mets. On July 12th, he picks up his 14th win at the expense of the Mets. And he used to feast on the Mets in the club's weak early years. Well, in his career, he was 17-2 versus them with a 1.44 ERA. On July 17th, Sandy leaves a game versus the Reds in the first. And he's out of the lineup until September 21st because of that injured finger. The doctors tried various drugs and intravenous injections designed to to dissolve the blood clot in his finger. Now, eventually it does alleviate his condition, but at one time, the threat of amputating his index finger was an option on the table. And man, you know, thank God that finger doesn't end up on the table. That, that, That would have been a true butterfly effect moment. That would have certainly impacted baseball history right there. So, with the Dodgers embroiled in a heated pennant race with those damn Giants, Kopax makes his return, but the layoff had a negative impact on his endurance. The Dodgers began to fade down a stretch, 
and when the dust had settled, it all came down to a three-game playoff series for the flag. Kopax takes the ball in game one, but he's knocked out of the game by the second inning. The Dodgers would lose game one and ultimately the series as the Giants moved on to the World Series where they would fall to the New York Yankees. Going into the 1963 campaign, there are concerns behind the scenes and lingering doubts about Kopax's condition. He missed three starts in late April and early May with a bum shoulder. And when he comes back, he comes back like a pimp, baby. And his first start, he stymies the cards of St. Lowe. His second start, he gives his rival Giants the finger and spins his second career no-hitter in two years in a head-to-head matchup outdueling the Dominican dandy Juan Marichal. Kopax is perfect in that game until he walks Ed Bailey with one, one out in the eighth. Surprisingly, he strikes out only four, the lowest title total of all his four no-nos. And because of his shoulder issues and the finger injuries, Kopax reflected that at that time, it was probably the, his personal biggest thrill of his career. The Southpaw finishes the year going 25-5 and with 11 shutouts. L.A. goes on to sweep the Yankees out of the World Series, and Sandy is named the Ball Classic MVP. Pitching complete games in Game 1 and rounds to a pot of 2 victory, and the clincher in Game 4, winning 2-1. to one. In Game 1, he struck out 15 Yankees, breaking his old friend Carl Erskine's World Series record of 14 set a decade before. Sandy would later apologize to his dear friend. He also set a series record that day by striking out the last five batters he faced. By the end of the 1963 season, Kopax had developed a nasty case of traumatic arthritis in his left elbow. And the condition required constant attention. And he often sat around in the clubhouse with his left arm of God soaking in an ice bath. And that was often followed with heat treatment. The trainer would rub a concoction called capsulin into his arm. It would irritate the skin to increase circulation. It burns until the arm finally goes numb. But you had to be careful with this stuff. Over-application would cause his skin to peel. In 1964, his arthritis is giving him the Dodger blues. On April 22nd, he lasts only one inning. He takes off for 12 days and returns to pick up a 10 to nothing win versus the Braves. One month later, in the city of brotherly love, he pitches his third no-hitter in as many seasons and his only shutout ever versus the Phillies. And Milwaukee, during an August game, Kopax dives back to second on a pickup play and he lands awkwardly on his elbow. The chronic throbbing after a pitch became more acute, and eventually his whole arm, from the shoulder down to his wrist, it swelled up. And he would need cortisone injections, as well as some oral medication, to reduce that inflammation. In 1965, Kopax makes a, a strategical decision to skip his customary sideline throwing between starts to quell the pain, and it proved to work as he had a career-high 335 and two-thirds innings pitched, 
382 strikeouts. That shattered the record set by Rube Waddell and his 349 in 1904. On September 9, 1965, Kopax draws its fourth no-hitter in four seasons. This time, a perfect game against the Chicago Cubs. And he becomes the first pitcher to toss uh, four no-hitters as he passed Bob Feller's record three. The Cubs pitcher Bob Henley was almost as spectacular that night as he only allowed one hit himself. One of those Dodger Stadium nights where the fans saw a total of one hit and two base runners all night. A record that still stands today. But the pain is downright unbearable at times for Sandy. Despite all the capsule and treatments, the ice baths, and pain relievers, he notices that his left arm was shortening. He now had to lean over to shave his face. Nonetheless, down the stretch, in yet another heated pennant race with San Francisco, he tosses four complete game victories in his last five starts. He then hurled two shutouts versus the Twins in the 1965 World Series. After taking the L in Game 2, he threw a four-hitter in Game 4, striking out 10. And on just two days rest, he fires a three-hitter at Minnesota to clinch the championship. And for the second time, he wins World Series MVP honors. Not only was he stellar yet again in another Dodgers championship run, but he also showed himself to be a man of principle and Jewish faith when he declined to pitch Game 1 of the series, which fell on October 6th in 1965 because of the high holy day of Yom Kippur. Upon the, outs- on the onset of the 1966 campaign, Koufax became embroiled in a contract squabble with the Dodger Brass. He and Don Drosdale had grown weary of being played against each other during negotiations. So, the two decided to pull their player value together and make their demands in solidarity with one another. Both sides were far apart in the beginning, and after many hard-fought hours, GM Buzz Bavese made a final offer of $240,000 as a package. $240,000 in 1966, and it has a purchasing power of over $2.4 million today. And this was at the time the largest sum ever paid to two pitchers on the same club. So look, freaks, breathe. The Dodgers been buying dudes since way back when. Kopax and his salary of $130,000, which is about $1.3 million today, was the highest paid player in the game at that time. However, Kopax and Drysdale did have to relinquish their no-cut clause in the deals. Team owner Walter O'Malley was ready to let them both pitches. He's ready to let them kick rocks if they didn't accept that final offer. And he let them know that, hey, the Mets, the Mets are interested in both of you. And nobody wants to play for the fucking Mets in 1966. In 1966, Kopax matched his career high of 41 starts that he set the year before. And of those 41 starts, 27 of them were complete games. Throughout the season, it became necessary for cortisone shots directly into the elbow joint. The injections became more frequent, and every time, Sandy's arm would swell up from the fluid. It sounds just dreadful, but 
I can't help but wonder, why is this guy throwing 27 complete games with all this going on? And again, say what you will about today's pitchers, but this is just bad strategy. It would never happen today. He is warned by the physicians that his arthritis is incurable. By the end of the 66th season, the left arm of God is literally bent at a 22.5 degree angle. And the bone spur in the elbow had grown to almost a quarter inch. Every single pitch that season caused pain. Shit, combing his hair was discomforting. He had suits retailored so that the malformation of his left arm remained hidden. But Pimpin didn't miss a start that year, y'all. Much like the 1951 stretch drive, the Giants got hot late in the 66 campaign, and they're hoping they can catch L.A. and put it in another three-game playoff series. Kovacs puts the Giants' dreams to rest in the last game of the season, pitching on two days rest in the nightcap of a doubleheader at Philly. He pitches a complete game 6-3 victory over Jim Bunning to clinch the pennant. In the 1966 World Series against the Baltimore Orioles, Kovacs starts game two on three days rest after that clincher versus Philly. Three days rest. He put in six innings, allowed four runs, and he was outdueled by 20-year-old rookie phenom Jim Palmer. The Orioles would sweep the Dodgers in four games, and with that, Game 1 of the 1966 World Series was the last time Sandy Koufax ever pitched in the majors. A few weeks after the series, Sandy Koufax would shock the baseball universe with his retirement at the tender age of 30 years old. And I told you in the beginning, when I think of Sandy Koufax, I think of the word mystique. His abrupt retirement certainly carries weight in relation relation to this mystique. He was like this fast-moving comet that shot across our baseball universe, and like all comets, they are beautiful when you catch it, but they fade out quickly. And you're forced to explain to someone how beautiful it was to a person who didn't see it. I really enjoyed putting in the work this week. And it's fitting to me that we end the 2023 year with a freak like Koufax. There are still so many things out there to learn about Sandy. I could probably do three parts about his story. But then what would you guys have to do? So, I gave you what I gave you and, you know... I gave you this broad overview, and if you so desire, there are plenty of things out there on Koufax to consume. And I encourage any true seamhead to look into him and his legendary career. But before I grip and rip with an epic bat flip, I want to thank you guys for your patience this week. I know the show came out later than usual, but... To be honest, I was kind of inspired by Sandy after the research and his ability to compartmentalize his priorities from his selfish desires by sitting out on Yom Kippur in the 65 World Series. The way I looked at it, if Koufax can sit out game one of the Fall Classic because of priorities bigger than baseball, bigger than the World Series, 
then I should be able to put down the mic for a couple of days and spend the Christmas holidays with my family unit that supports my dreams and ambitions harder than anyone on the planet. I'm very antisocial in a lot of ways. All year I blow up family functions and holidays, dinners, and services to the show. Or I'll go and I'll hang out a little bit, but I'm always looking at the watch. This year I felt I really needed to take a page out of Sandy's book and do the right thing. So I prioritized the unit before the show, which was weird, but I survived. And I hope you did so. Thank you for your patience and understanding on that. And for the last time in 2023, let's take a look at those oh so lovely Sandy Kopak stats. Sandy Kopak's the left hand of God, born December 30th, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York. So the day this show drops into the baseball universe. Mr. Koufax will be celebrating his 89th birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Koufax. Attended Lafayette High School in Brooklyn, the University of Cincinnati, and Columbia University. On June 24th, 1954, he became the 11,266th person to play in a major league game when at the age of 19 years old, he debuts against the Milwaukee Braves. 12-year baseball career, all with the Dodgers organization in both Brooklyn and Los Angeles. 48.9 wins above replacement. 165 wins, 87 losses for a 665 winning percentage. A lifetime ERA of 2.67, which, remember folks, he has an ERA slightly over 4 in his first 6 years. Really think about that. 137 complete games and 314 starts, 40 shutouts, including 10 one nothing victories, 2,324 and a third innings pitched, 2,396 strikeouts, 9,497 batters face, 2.69 pip, 1.11 whip, and a 131 ERA plus. Batters had a minuscule 205, 275, 319 slash against them. Seven All-Star appearances, 1963 NLMVP, 1963 and 65 World Series MVP, three-time Triple Crown pitcher, 63, 65, 66, three-time Cy Young Award winner. Again, back when there was only one Cy Young winner that year. Five consecutive ERA titles, three immaculate innings, four no-hitters in consecutive years. By the way, Two one-hitters, eight two-hitters, 17 three-hitters if you're keeping score at home. Eight times during the regular season, he struck out at least 15 batters in a game. He dominated early banks like no other batter of his era. Era? Making Mr. Cobb a mortal 160 hitter. And no one hit Sandy better than Bill Burton of the Buckos, who sported a 404 batting average against the fireballing Southpaw, even though he swung left-handed and was a career 267 hitter. His number 32 was retired for posterity, and they have a beautiful uh, statue at Dodger Stadium of him. And if you haven't seen it, check that out on Google. It's pretty impressive. And in 1972, he received 334 votes 
the most at that time out of a possible 396 ballots for 86.9% of the vote for his induction into the Pantheon of Baseball Immortals housed in Cooperstown, New York. He was, and still is, the youngest player ever inducted into the Hall of Fame, a 36-year-old. And he is now the fifth oldest living Hall of Famer behind Willie Mays, Whitey Herzog, Louis Avaricio, and Bob Sealing. Boy, oh boy, what a baseball life. I could go on and on about this cat. Gentlemen, boys and girls, seam heads of all ages. This is the story of Sandy Kopax, the left arm of God. And the numbers in that five-year stretch are absolutely mind-bottling, freaks. If you want your dome to explode... Go check out those that six-year run for the next half hour or so. The dude was a straight pimp, and I'm so grateful to have you guys here with me as I put a backwards K-Pod next to his name in the books. Nicely add a story to our collection of ballplayers for the very last one in 2023. And get you nerds back to your loved ones patiently waiting for you back at Terrapin Station. <laughs> I will never charge you freaks for the baseball content. But if you could, please leave a rate review, share with your CMED buddies, and support those sponsors that support me. As we begin to traverse space and time to get you back to Terrapin, I see Kopax and the 2023 year getting smaller and smaller in my rear views. So I turn my attention to I never say die baseball hydra and I chop the head off that beast only to see two more baseball topics appear in their place. Next week, we ring in the new year of BKP with a deep dive into the life and career of Tiger Slugger Hank Greenberg. Sounds like fun. But look, y'all know the deal. That's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod and the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network where we collect ball players and their stories. Onward and upward, freaks. I love all of you. Stay safe in your New Year's festivities. Drink and drive responsibly. If any of you get arrested, holler at your boy. I got your bail. If you need to bury the evidence... Hit me up. I got you. I look forward to another year with you, Freaks. I got some great shows coming. Going into our third year. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch, they got their noses and their phones and their pads. They're looking bored AF. By all means, take those little ragamuffins outside and play a game of catch. I believe I covered all my goals this year. So, Vinny, Vinny the Sea. I came, I saw, I conquered. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. 
And like my boy, Shay Hillenbrand, told me that one on one smarty session in the dojo last year. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. And quite frankly, as an Oriole fan, I agree, good brother. Preach. Me and my felonious feline of a co-host, Charlie Guns, we're throwing up our Gunner Hendersons to the baseball universe right now. That's our number twos, freaks. As in peace. See you next week with Greenberg. Happy New Year. Let's keep this train rolling. <laughs>